Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we've got a fantastic show for you. We continue on with our autobiography and books. And we're going to talk about podcast recommendations because the New York Times Book Review podcast has asked people to discuss beloved podcasts and really, I think, draw people into the podcast world and they have a hashtag tripodcast or tripod or something. Tripod probably because... I know that would be clever. Yeah. That would be more clever. But um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to tripod as well. And, uh, and we're going to also take our autobiography and books a little deeper into um, kind of tips and tricks and techniques for writing and how it shaped us as writers and what it might to offer be those to kinds our, of readers to, to our listeners. Yeah. So um, but let's start. Oh, let's start with um, what we're working on. Well, I continue to be working on more production things than I would maybe like to be at this point. Uh, so we're both entrenched in the film and getting everything together. I'm really excited. Table read coming up, so very excited about that. And, um, and anything you're learning as a screenwriter uh, as you go into this sort of level of production? Well, you know, one of the things people say when you're writing is you should cast it and, you know, pick famous actors. And, you know, I get it. You know, and if you're someone like me, though, you're like, oh, you know, there are very few famous actors who really sort of resonate with the kind of story you're writing. Mm -hmm. There aren't quite the same number of, you know, queer, you know, Anyway, so yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, a little bit challenging, but now that we have some of these roles filled, or actually all of the roles filled, mm -hmm. it is kind of amazing to then go back and think, how does this person actually impact the way I've written that character? Mm -hmm. And I expect, in case any of the cast is listening, that they will also bring some insight to their own performance and, and, and see Absolutely. how that grows. I'm really looking forward to that part of it. Um, but also, what is the most important thing about a given scene? Because we're really struggling with location right now mm -hmm. and, and locking that down. And so thinking about how and where we might be able to do things differently. And I wrote it for a specific location, and I wrote it to be easy to produce. And at the same time, you know, Pilar Alessandra has a wonderful exercise that she has people do where she says okay if you if you have sort of a scene if you that is a traditional scene like uh, let's say you write police dramas that's what you write whatever you might think about an interesting place to in, have the traditional interrogation scene right there's always an instead interrogation of the scene room, the so instead of the you know the boxy room with the two-way mirror where else could that happen so now i'm having that same kind of question as i go through looking at the script, considering locations, where else could this happen? And of course we have a pool in the current version. So what does the pool do? And how can I do that somewhere else? So those are the things. <laughs> in case we don't have a pool. Right. Yeah, it's real. Actually, you know, um, Ellen Sussman, who we had on a previous episode, does an exercise. Um, I mean, I'm sure she's not the only one, but where she'll say, you know, okay, write, uh, you know, three other ways this could happen. Like, take something you have and write three other ways it could happen. And um, inevitably, people, you know, though, though we resist writing in a different way, 
actually pick one of the subsequent ways rather than the first way to, to change it. And I was, this morning in my little early morning writing, I was thinking about um, the understory, right? Because there's sort of a mystery in my in my book and um, the more that kind of gets pushed to the surface, the, the investigation, the more I have to figure out what she doesn't know that she's discovering. And so I've got what she thinks is happening, which is really what I think, which is sort of the most obvious thing. And I just started asking myself, what else could it be? You know, what else could it be besides the most obvious thing, which is, of course, going to be much more interesting to, to anyway. So it's, it's like it's one of those things that's incredibly obvious. And yet sometimes even thinking of the most obvious thing is such a creative act when you're pulling it out of nowhere, <laughs> you know, that to move to the next most obvious thing is is just a whole other leap so anyway so that's exciting creative creative uh constraints or logistic constraints providing creative motivation exactly awesome well so i sort of said i mean i'm working on this kind of pass of my book where um i'm making the, the changes that i told myself to make in the last one and what's hard is that in this one i'm not letting myself move on you know, put a little note to the side saying, you know, figure out the backstory and then move on because that's just such, creates such a burdensome to-do list. I mean, I think at some point you have to do that, right? You have to read it, make a list and go through. But now I'm going through the list and it's so tempting when something is too hard to kind of push it off. And, um, and I'm trying not to do that. So I'm trying to really be done with each section as I edit it mm-hmm. so that I can pass it on. You are also in a deep, like high number revision. So it's a different thing. Like yes. when you're in an earlier revision, you know, there's the, uh, a lot of science to sort of back up, focus, 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 and then move away mm-hmm. and let the, um, what is that? The diffuse mode of your mind work and make those unexpected associations. But you have to focus first. But there's a point at which you've had your diffuse time, you've had your focus time, and it's time to put pencil to paper and finish. Well, and my diffuse mind would love to make this a different book because I'm bored with this book. I mean, I've read this book like 200 times. So to me, anything sounds better than the way it is, right? And I mean, I just think that even if you were Shakespeare, you know what I mean, and you're reading Hamlet for the 500th time trying to make it a little better, you'd be like, let's just not do this whole ghost dad thing. Like, let's just try something else because I've just read this 200 times. Do you know what I mean? Well, also, given his output, there is no way he read it 200 times. Although they probably performed it right over and over. So in that way, and he probably revised it and they and the actors got in there and did their thing. But they have the folios. So you but the know. folios were written, I think, even after he was dead. Like a lot of the things were put together. So he would write, scrawl a, a line on like a piece of paper and hand it, whatever they had, and hand it to them. And the actors would say it. And a lot of the scripts were put together from, did you know that? From like the, these scraps of paper. The actors put the scripts together later. Okay, we're going to have to examine that and bring it on in next time because that's fascinating. Yeah. So it's because not, I know, now it's all like biblically important each well, word. Not only that, but like someone who's supposed to be the best writer ever in the English language, Geoffrey Chaucer, and mm-hmm. everyone else who's ever lived since then. Um, aside. Aside. Mm-hmm. I think that... It's really interesting because that, if you think about as a writing process and how often we have this sense of we've given him entire ownership, we've given, you know, and that ethos of ownership, and yet it sounds it was probably far more collaborative. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that genius is about collaboration. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, he's the ge- the great, you know, the great genius because he could collaborate. Mm-hmm. You know, because he because if somebody said you know, but soft, and he meant them to say something else, you know, and it sounded better, he could go, yeah, let's, let's steal that. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Um, so a couple of business things. Um, first of all, Angie has now permanently put how to review a podcast into our show notes so that you can go take a look at the full description of the episode, you know, e- either through your, your iTunes format or on our on our website storymakersshow.com because it's it's a little obscure how to do it how to review it it's it's you kind of have to have the persistence of any other writing form if you want to become a published reviewer mostly you just need to be logged in to itunes yeah um and any no but then you have to click on the right like there's three little tiny. There's a link, things. but anyway, yes, we don't have to go into it right now. Right. It's you in the can do it. You can totally do it. We it's believe not in you. That complicated or hard once you just know how to do it. And if you could go and publish yourself a little review of our podcast, that would be so awesome. You'd be published, and more of the world could could know about these story makers conversations. Actually, it puts me in mind. I had a friend who did an entire series of poems as Amazon reviews. So he would log in with a fake username and review things. Real reviews? Yeah, he would put reviews up, but they would be poems. Mm. And it, he kind nice. of, yeah, it was kind of amazing. He was sort of, sort of very interesting. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I'll have to tell me off, off mic who this mysterious poet reviewer is. Yes. But think of all the creative ways you could do review haiku, uh, you know, telegram form. But you know what? Anything you do will just will be so happy. And so. that, we'll move on. <laughs> well, the other bit of business I want to mention is that um, Book Writing World craft classes are open now for spring enrollment. And you can go to bookwritingworld.com and click on Classes or bookwritingworld.com backslash classes. And um, I have two classes in Berkeley, one um, on Tuesdays at 12.30 in the afternoon and one on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. And then I have an online class, so you can be anywhere in the world and zoom on into us. And uh, and those, I mean, you're, you're the tech person here, but I have been surprised at how wonderfully personable and intimate and collegial uh, those online classes are. We see each other. We know each other. The only thing we don't know is how tall anybody is, right? So you meet somebody. Everybody hugs when they first meet, but they're like, oh, you're tall, or oh, you know. Um, anyway. You're less tall. You're less, you're, oh, you're, yeah. <laughs> uh, you look older. No. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, anyway, so those are open, and we're starting classes again April 11th and 13th. So if anybody's interested, um, Go check it out. We, we really love uh, our incredible, talented community of post-MFA, pre-MFA, no-MFA, people writing under contract with publishers, people just starting out, and somehow everybody does gorgeous work in the class. So bookwritingworld.com, classes. That's the business. Okay. Um, next, we have our... Uh, autobiography in books topic. The college years. The college years. 
Angie, what, um, what book shaped and impressed you? Well, you know, it's interesting because you think about the college years, and for me, that's a, <laughs> that's a very long stretch of time. So what I'm going to say is college age years, and what I did during that time was discover girls. And so a lot of my... Before that, you didn't know they existed. Not like that. <laughs> and... <laughs> What happened for me also is that a lot of my reading, obviously, was informed by uh, writers who were talking about the world that I was entering in, in whatever way. And so it might have been uh, something like uh, Jeanette Winterson's, you know, everybody was reading The Passion. You know, I mean, that's, you're kind of stealing my thunder here because it's all about Jeanette Winterson, let's face it. Yeah, yeah, so... Oh, and I... Hi, Jeanette, if you're listening. And I just want to say this, that I remember reading The Passion. I was in a BART station, and I was, like, waiting. I was transferring. So it was, like, and it was somewhere in San Francisco. And and I got to the line, I'm telling you stories. Trust me. And I had to sit down on one of those, like, round sort of faux marble things and just, like, I was just ecstatic. So there we go. (laughs) So we're just going to have a reverent moment. (laughs) I want to say this one more thing about Jeanette Winterson, which is in Britain, she is really one of the acclaimed kind of key authors, right? Mm -hmm. So, and she's on the BBC all the time and, you know, she's just somebody, she's like that, this go-to kind of pillar of British literature. And um, I'm not sure that any queer female authors have gotten that status out queer female authors writing queer content have gotten that status in the US we'll have to look that up (laughs) or think about it yes so just going back to the autobiography uh, the other things I just you know I remember this time being so kind of rich with reading and we read in groups we read on the lawn together drinking gin and tonics we, um, you know, I remember my friend Kim was reading nonfiction, which was baffling to me. <laughs> and I just thought that was like so adult because <laughs> I just wouldn't really necessarily be drawn to nonfiction in the way that I am now. You I are so drawn to nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, but at the time it was, all, you know, Sarah Schulman was a big, big person in our, uh, little world. <laughs> and, um... You know, also reading books like uh, Generation X, um, and Generation X. Yeah, I don't so know X. you don't know Generation X? Do I know? I don't think so. Okay, well, uh, it's What's Generation X. It's a book that you know is about you know sort of those of us who were in our late teens, early twenties, and the eighties and nineties, and the guy who wrote it, and I can't remember it right now. It was just, it was funny, and it felt accurate, and it was, and, and it'll be in the show notes. Yes, and then one other book was a book uh, that Audrey introduced me to, which was about class, and it was sort of a mm-hmm. playful analysis of of class in the U.S. and sort of who, what art you could expect to find in in whose house based mm-hmm. on class and just different kinds of things. That was. Um, Acknowledging, Like, I think in the U.S. we pre- try to pretend we don't have issues of class or, or you know, like that kind of thing. And so this was sort of a parody of oh, our, our um, 
class system. Interesting. So, yeah. You know, when you say Audrey, though, I know it's a different spelling and a completely different human being. It makes me think of Audrey Lord. Yes. For that time period. Yes. And actually, I mean, well, she's sort of nonfiction, biomythography, right? Right. And this, I mean, oh there my were, God, Zami was just yeah. like. Sammy, a, a new spelling of my name also will be in the show notes. And I, I mean, I, I used to have lines memorized from that. I, let me see. I'm going to just try here. To the first woman I ever courted and left, she taught me that women who love without needing are expensive and sometimes wasteful. But women who need without loving are dangerous. They suck you in and pretend not to notice. Ooh. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I don't have this memorized, but she had another passage about the one who breaks up versus the one who is broken up with and how each is still, like, mourning or wounded or has suffers the loss, right? And that, that was really profound to me, mm-hmm. too, that it wasn't just... The, you know, the one who's walked away wasn't necessarily just um, free of it all. Right, right. Oh, my God, I'm having, like... <laughs> flashbacks <laughs> college you know rooms with posters of Audre Lorde mm. um, you know just thinking about like Nikki, Nikki Giovanni that was like mm. the first time I was introduced to her something Audrey Rich. needs to be said about Rosa Parks other than that her feet were tired lots of people on the bus that day had tired feet lots of people still do they just don't know where to plant them Yes. Yeah. I just. <laughs> I just want, and Audrey and Rich. I just yes, want to put her in and um, lies, secrets, and on lies, and secrets, and, and silence. silence. Notes on women in honor. Mm. And also, I mean. she talks about procrastinating writing your paper until the last minute. And she has this really deep theory about that and about like not giving yourself kind of the space to really mm. to really delve in. Uh, I don't remember it all, but I remember, aha, that's a that's a thing. That's not just, you know, a thing. It's right. Well, th- th- it was that book. There was also um, Language of a Common Dream. Mm-hmm. What was, it? was that it? Oh, yeah. Well, it'll be in the show. Yeah, <laughs> and so it was 21 Love Poems. Mm. That is just a sort of remarkable, concise... Dream of a Common Language. Dream of a Common Language. Thank you. <laughs> language of a Common Dream. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a fun play. Yeah. Words. Um, but yeah, so basically it's sort of like, oh, okay, this is who we were when we were. and Deeply shaped by books. Yes. And June Jordan. Mm. And, you know, yeah. just, I remember being on vacation in Mexico reading her book. Oh, my God, I'm old. <laughs> um, but she was actually talking about being, coming from the U.S. and going traveling to another country uh, here I am you know a white woman on a Mexican beach wait, this is not June Jordan yeah oh, you're she's not a white woman on a Mexican no no beach. I'm you're reading a- June Jordan <laughs> I am reading June Jordan oh, on a Mexican beach you're a white woman reading making June Jordan you, yeah. got it wow so <laughs> that's a thing but anyway like to think about it and it's very interesting now because at the time one of the things that's hard and we've talked about this political moment is we have now seen uh, as queer people, the possibilities of rights, what it is to have our marriage, you know, acknowledged by the government. And at the time... No, taken away. Acknowledged. Taken away. Right. But at the time that we were reading these things, it was almost... Inco- we were fighting for these things, but it was almost it incomprehensible. It was not going to be in our lifetime. It was right. not going to be in our lifetime. It was almost incomprehensible. And now that we've seen it, of course, 
you know, it's a very different, the, what we're willing to sort of put up with, you know, they talk about people are much uh, more willing to, um, what is it? It's, they will fight harder to prevent for things being taken away. Yes, than than to gain. Than to gain things. And yet, I look at the very politicized nature of our reading, even though I wasn't in college necessarily, these were my college years, of course, (laughs) I wasn't in college in the same way, but... And let this be a reassurance to parents whose children are moving in and out of college. Yes. Um, It's a process. It is a process. I'm done now. Um, Are you though? You're well, okay, your second I'm almost master's. done. You're getting your second master's degree. There is no done, and that's a good thing, right? But I mean, with undergrad, because that, <laughs> that did take me 13 years. But anyway, um, and so it's really great, I think, and kind of energizing to look back at these people who were so inspiring and motivating, and to reconnect with that feeling, because even though we were all maybe at that point not even really able to imagine what it would be like to have that level of recognition, we were all willing to sort of fight for things. And also the power of recognizing each other was heady. And the community, the sense of community. I mean, and I will say because we met when I was 21 and you were maybe 22, if you were not also 21. And... um, and, I mean, you were definitely someone I saw as a gatekeeper to that world. <laughs> Which I find ironic, but um, there you go. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was that. And I think that's actually important for us all to remember right now is that it is very, very powerful to have mainstream recognition of your rights and to live in that privilege. You know, and I have experienced given privilege and, and won privileged. Privilege that I've won and privilege that I've been given. But... Um, but it is also really we can we can see each other too, and we can give each other a certain kind of um, visibility, you know, in our invisibility that I think is really important. That they can't take that away. They who might be trying. Right. <laughs> I want to say um, I want to add to this mix uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, mm-hmm. who was actually one of my professors. Yeah, yeah. And so powerful. And um, one of her exercises that I'll just share with everybody um, was she said, make a table of contents of your life. Create a table of contents of your life. And I think partly to think of your life in that way. Mm -hmm. Right? It's it's a way of starting to think about story and to think about episodes and, you know, the build of Mm -hmm. something. How you want to tell it. I don't know. I think that's very powerful. Yeah. And I, one of the things I'm sort of interested in is I know that as, you know, when you're young and you're looking up into middle age and you're like, oh, Jesus, nobody cares about anything. Nobody, you know, kind of emotionally dead inside. <laughs> um, true. But what was true was that our social setup was one where you could learn about these voices because you were swimming in a social circle of people who were likewise interested in things. And, I, you know, and I'm just actually sort of um, thinking about our, our podcast with Melisa and how she's, you know, this wonderful voice of, uh, you know, all kinds of like social justice and, and out in the world doing things. And we had the opportunity to um, talk with her, to hang out with her. And, um, but because we're not in college... 
we're not actually getting exposed in the same way to the kind of um, cultural stuff that is happening around all the stuff that we were so excited about as young people. And that when you're in college, you're just swimming in it. And I think you just don't even like you're baffled as to why old people don't get it or why old people are not. Uh, I'm giving I'm an old person at this relative to what I thought at that point. Right, right. You, you, the you of then would consider the you of now. Yeah, I would be shaking in the corner with an existential crisis looking at me. But um, but it's interesting to think about how we as adults who are no longer swimming in an academic environment get access to. Because when we got to hang out with Melissa, what she was doing was going to Sonoma State, right? Mm-hmm. And she was participating in you know a wonderful project about conceiving you know these worlds. Just this thing we were talking about, the thing about conceiving a world beyond the limitations of this current one socially and, and politically. And I just want to I want to say sort of put a plug in for creativity as the way to do that and to say mm-hmm. that um, because I'm actually doing a show in the National Queer Arts Festival and Melissa is going to be one of the performers and this is Melissa Vinales and we'll put a link to her uh, our episode interview with her that Angie's referring to um, so I think you know she she had published a book last year she came on our podcast she came to Sonoma State she's going to do that again so there are these conversations still happening I mean book group book, book club but also for me I feel like through the book writing world through Sonoma County Writers Camp, through making a film with you. And I want to encourage everybody to go to, to Facebook, Lost in the Middle Movie, and, uh, and you know, join our Facebook page. I mean, I just feel like there, we are, there are really exciting things happening. It's just connecting to them. Well, and we live in a somewhat rural place, relative, right? So when we were in Berkeley, certain aspects of the kinds of conversations we had when we were in college continued on on a different level mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting I think yeah. I just um, as I was thinking about that and that sense of community around shared vision mm-hmm. um, it's just it's very different when you get older and you become a person who is having a job and having children and ha- you know doing your life um, so there you go so that that's the college years and uh Next time, we're going to look at, just kind of in a sweep, the key bo- the books that kind of remain key for us from the adult years as writers and kind of look back at all of this in terms of how um, it shaped us as writers and, and what, what we might... How the relationship between reading and writing, I think, yeah. as well in life. So, um, fantastic. So, it is Tripod Month, the very end of Tripod Month, because Tripod Month was apparently March. And we're going to each... Um, pro-offer a couple of podcasts that we love Um, and I will say you got me interested in podcasts because you're always out there on the cutting edge listening to different things going oh this is sort of interesting and then I will end up listening to it sometimes for more oh my god you have so many podcasts on your phone it's true I love you can't even take pictures of our children because you have so many podcasts on. (laughs) and talk about being part of the conversation right it's a way for me I mean I feel like it's it's the way that I clean the kitchen without you know feeling full of rage and frustration is oh I'm listening to this fascinating conversation you know I'm listening to these people talk about Zadie Smith's swing time or I'm listening to these people talk about the art of screenwriting or whatever it is and it makes me feel like I'm super happy to be unloading the dishwasher and doing the laundry. Um, so that's kind of my how I cope with middle age and still having the conversation. <laughs> 
So uh, you want to start? What's what are? Well, I'll say one of the longest running ones and the ones that I've enjoyed for years is uh, Pilar Alessandra's On the Page. And so it's a screenwriting podcast. But she's got a lot of people on who do a lot of different things and um, just so many different approaches to writing and um, thinking about screenwriting. And it was like a really early one, right? Cause she, and you, she would have, like, beer and sit and well, I think she had wine. Wine. Yes. And you just loved that. <laughs> I know. I loved that. I think it was, like, her first ten episodes. And I kept trying to get you to get on board with that. But that <laughs> I can't even get you to have a glass of wine when we go out to dinner. So it was hey, not going to happen hey. midday for a podcast. <laughs> It might. It has, to be honest. It has, I think, twice. It's sort of our Easter egg. Yeah, the question is, yes, can you find the the drunken podcast? (laughs) Just slightly tipsy. But, um, okay, so so on the page, and yeah, and she's a a teacher of screenwriting, and um, so she kind of asks craft-oriented questions and and is interested in the industry and all of that. And Mm -hmm. sometimes she'll have, occasionally she'll have novelists and, other kinds of writers on too. All right, how about you? Uh, so, um, well, the, so one of mine is um, other people, other PPL with Brad Listy, and I will say that when I first started listening to this, and Brad, if you're listening, um, you know, no offense, <laughs> as my fourth grader likes to say, you know, you know, nothing good is coming. No, but I mean, I'm recommending this. This is one of my recommendations. But when I first started listening, I thought this guy thinks he's Mark Maron. <laughs> and he was doing, you know, the WTF podcast comedian. And so Brad was doing monologues, like Mark does monologues. And he has kind of a, a somewhat similar voice, um, although coming from a different kind of ethnicity white different white ethnicity um and uh so he does the monologues and sometimes I was like I don't care about your life Brad but he's (laughs) but I do I mean I do I love you Brad but um (laughs) not really anyway (laughs) here's the thing that I'm recommending is he has great writers on and he talks to them in a very real way he's very real you know, and I think um, it's a quality that people talk about you with too, Ange. Like he's he's authentic. He's showing up. Um, he's not he's not as funny as you are, but he's he's sincere, and he's a novelist, and um, and he um, he also runs the Nervous Breakdown. Is that what it's called? The, the, no. Okay, that'll have to be in the show notes. He runs something else I'm not very familiar with, but um, he does great interviews with people. And, um, and gets a lot of information about their lives and things like that. Um, so they're fun to listen to. All right. Uh, your next and final recommendation? Well, actually, I was going to talk about script notes, okay. which is one that you're also like me on podcast. Um, but one of the things I wanted to say, actually, just more than a particular podcast is that, you know, sometimes I get into a groove of the kinds of things I'm thinking about. So I might look at a lot of podcasts around writing. Mm -hmm. I might look at um, a lot of podcasts about filmmaking. Um, But there are podcasts out there, and and, and I actually guess what I want to encourage for Tripod Month is that uh, you take the opportunity to do a search on, um, you know, social issues that matter to you. Because... um, there are a lot of podcasts out there who are actually talking about the things that I'm just mentioned, where I was like, oh, I don't feel like I'm part of this, you know, interesting, uh, socially dynamic 
conversation anymore. And so I actually just right now I was talking to you, did a search to see if there was a Black Lives Matter podcast, because the truth is, you know, I, I follow Sean King, I do these different things. But in terms of podcasts, I didn't really know, like, are there things out there? And what I found was that um, in some instances, there might be a single episode of a given podcast addressing that topic. But there also are a number of podcasts where people are sort of keeping everyone up to date about different issues. So I would encourage folks to think outside their normal go-to listening and think about something they're curious about and do a search and try on something you've never tried before. And I think searching is really fun. So like in your in your iTunes thing, if you click the little... Um What's that thing called? Magnifying glass, search, and then you can do... And that's how I often find podcasts. I'll search on a particular author I want to hear an interview with. I'll search on a topic. So, um, yeah. um, You might check out Two Dope Queens. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You might really groove on... uh, No, I know that. It's Jessica Jessica Williams. Williams Yeah, yeah. And Phoebe Robinson. Yes. yeah, so that's and it's comedy, right? So that's that's really fun. And I um, always like comedy. But but in terms of writing, just since that is our focus uh, for story makers, um, I just want to also recommend the ten minute writers workshop because it's ten minutes long, and um, they, and it's a writers workshop. And they basically do short interviews, but they, and they ask the same questions of each writer, and they'll they'll nab people like before a reading or things like that, and just ask these questions and the things like you know do you do you which is harder the first line or the last line and you know things like that and it's sort of fun to hear everybody's different answers to this same series of questions so um so that's a good one and and, uh, and since it's going to be in the in the story note in the show notes uh we both listen to script notes and it's one that i listen yeah. to pretty consistently that's john august john august i think and is craig mason. and craig mason john august is sort of interesting because you know he also does uh other app development so he you know worked and created a new font for screenwriting because you know for years it was courier and now there's courier prime he's developed an app a couple of apps you know so he's sort of um both a techie and a writer and of course that is a little thing that touches my heart but he does highland which is a and he developed fountain and he developed uh weekend read so of those, I would definitely encourage folks to take a look at Weekend Read if you are into screenwriting, because I think the number one thing that most screenwriters who are starting out fail to do is read screenplays. Mm. And so Weekend Read does a fantastic job of reaching into a PDF and really um, creating a readable version of a PDF on your phone. Or right. on your iPad. And we'll put that in the show notes, too, right above where it says how to review this podcast. <laughs> I want to say about reading, there are, there are times when I'm in earlier revision where I just couldn't almost read any other novel. Like, I, had, I was just reading mm-hmm. and catching up on our enormous number of magazines and things because I just couldn't, like, when I just because of where I was at with my novel. Now, at this kind of later stage... I'm actually finding, I'm reading, like, I'm reading a ton of French. I mean, I'm, partly because I'm thinking about mysteries and just unching it that way. But ton of French is so, I think, brilliant. And I find that I'm reading, and in fact, this can go right into steal this, but I'm reading, like, like deliberately to sort of to steal. And not, like, literal content, but I'm noticing 
Um, are you ready for steal this? Because this, yes. this is it. Steal this. Amateur poets borrow. Professional, Professional poets, poets steal. steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you'd like to steal this week? Well, I have been reading The Likeness, which is Tana French's second book. So um, so in Into the Woods or In the Woods is the first one. And then I read the last one, The Trespassers, because your mom bought it <laughs> in hardback and gave passed it on to me. So I read her first and her last. And I'm reading the second. And... Um, She's so good at the stakes, like really, like, and, and she does it through um, interiority, a certain kind of, and she's, but she's also really good at interiority. Interiority is not abstract. Um, it's, it's kind of, and she, you're right in the scene, and then the character, the point of view character is kind of, uh, for example, noting the, the tensions in the room and the different, you know, possibilities and how things could go and why somebody, you know, might be making this face or do, doing this tactic. So I think that's really brilliant, you know. Um, so, so it's, and I'm finding it a much richer practice at this late stage to be reading and thinking about those things, um, even though probably, in, in fact, they'll, they'll mostly go into, like, the next book, right, in a way they're doing. But they're little tweaks, like little tweaks where I can be like, oh, let me throw something in. And because it's... Well, this actually speaks a little bit to craft class, right? Mm. So one of the things that you do in your craft class is you look at how a successful author... I mean, this is exactly what you do. You look at how a successful author does something and you reverse engineer it a little bit. And then you help... Create an exercise. Yeah, you create an exercise so that the people who are in your class are taking their own content and running it through this model yeah that we know works because it's in a published book right and it's and you know and you as a reader i think are very astute and so you're looking at uh models that earn not you know because you know we've all seen published things that we're like really huh well you know what's funny is i'm very often um I, i very often have the question sometimes it's a student's question right like how do i you know make a scene build or turn or how do i you know get the character on the page or whatever whatever the question is and then I'm going to the text and I'm looking and when I see what they do then I'm creating the answer in the class that we're you know so the, so I'm not actually going let me find an example of complex interiority that raises the stakes I'm thinking well Tana French always has really high stakes how does she do it and I'm going into the text and going oh she's got this kind of back and forth with the interiority that makes you not you know feel off balance and then I and then you know I read it and everybody kind of filters it through their own story and their own you know interiority and and comes out with these really amazing things and I think also seeing that everybody comes out with something very different you know, using the kind of muscle of of a particular technique is is inspiring. It really reminds us that we are so creative. You don't have to ever be afraid. You're mm-hmm. going to do anything that isn't your original work. Right. You know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So really fun. And I'm and I'm actually using Tana French both for Sonoma County Writers Camp. Um, you know, conflict this May, and then and then in this upcoming spring term, I, I really want to look at mystery as. Um, something that's sort of relevant to all story, right? The mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of what's going to happen next, what happened, those questions really drive all, all story. story. Yeah, and so I'm going to use some literal literary mystery to teach us all, you know, whether you're writing nonfiction, 
fiction, memoir, right. whatever, how to, how to... Or the bridges of Madison County. Beef it up. Whatever it is, it's got a place in book writing world. How about you? Um, well, I think that, you know, I've been really just so involved with the film stuff and trying to kind of get that going in the different ways. Um, but, you know, I really actually have been missing story because I've been working so much in this other area. And um, I'm trying to remember. There was Anyway, so for this week, one of the things that I'm sort of thinking about, and, and film is really showing me how little I did this as a prose writer, much of, which I, much of what I did as a prose writer was very intuitive. And as I studied... I'm um, going to keep writing prose just in case you're talking about this in past history. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is, is you know, when I studied writing, like mm-hmm. creative writing, I didn't always like go into a scene and think, what am I trying to do? Mm-hmm. I would just write scenes. Here's a story. And I would write a scene. And I would have an intuitive sense of when it was done and when it had started and whatever. And, um, you know, and so my whole backstory, of course, is like I studied structure because I didn't know how to end my thesis. Right. So here we are. Page 400. (laughs) It started in World War One and now it's 1978. (laughs) And um, so as I really learned and got into that, I really was understanding the dynamics and the relationship between character and structure and, you know, all of Mm -hmm. these things. But I don't think I ever intentionally took it down further. So as I'm doing my director work Mm -hmm. and I have to ask this question when I'm thinking about the visuals to create a scene, the question I have to ask is repeatedly, and we talk about, um, David Mamet talks about this a lot of, what does a person need to know in this scene? A viewer. Yeah, what does a viewer need to know uh, in order to get what they need out of it, to move the story forward? But what, what do they need to know? And I never ever ask that question on a scene level and it's also it's it's this very basic because we we go into like sort of philosophical woo-woo abstraction and it's like no they need to know that they're these two people are sisters or right or they need to know right. that what she's got in her hand is a rock or whatever it's like it's, it's something and because concrete. it's visual obviously you're you're then looking for visual solutions how do i communicate this visually and, and as a prose writer, you can just say, she has a rock in her hand. Right. right. But or when you... Or you what the rock means or this relationship. But when you back out and you start editing on a scene level mm-hmm. and looking at what does my reader need to know, understand, and feel coming out of the scene to get them where they need to go. And that was just never something I had in mm. my revision arsenal. Yeah. And so... I'm, I think for the next while on the podcast, I'll be, I, I'll be stealing things that I do for the film mm-hmm. and thinking about how I apply those to um, my prose writing because... And, and even to your earlier draft screenwriting, right? Absolutely. You'll probably have that. Yes. Now, you had mentioned off mic um, kind of ways, this is sort of circling back as we and as we wind up, but in terms of like your, your autobiography of reading, the ways that you had... Misunderstood. Misunderstood right. techniques. You want to just tell me what you're talking about? Well, you know, as a, I think I mentioned, when I was in high school, I read, I just still have a very physical memory of lying on the couch and reading 
short Atlantic short stories. My my dad got the Atlantic. I would lie around and read these short stories, and so um, nobody read the New Yorker. So I didn't have a sense of what a New Yorker story See, story we read was. The New Yorker at my house. We're, so we're kind of an inter not in, like an interfaith inner magazine family yes mm-hmm. um, but you know in the time that I was reading those there was a, I, I think it was probably true of New Yorker stories as well it was like you know this ambiguous ending right just that was the 80s and I think that for a long time I had no idea how that functioned or understood what it was actually doing and so I would write these stories that would sort of end in the middle of a scene and I didn't really know or have a way to kind of analyze what it was I was doing. I was just mimicking what I saw, but without an understanding, really, mm-hmm. of what was being constructed. Do you feel so, like you know now what was being constructed? I think that um, there is... I understand resonance in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I think about the the... Gosh, what is that? It's not called the swimmer. It's is that is it called the swimmer? Yeah, yeah. Cheever, I believe so. Um, you know that one has that twist at the end where he gets home, and you know it's all sort of supernatural in that sense that it's like how much time has passed. It's suddenly become autumn, and now it's the winter Wait, of his soul. Maybe you just have to be older to understand that thing about time. Well, you know, but it's still sort of interesting because. It also gets into what do we give ourselves permission to try? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I think there's intentionality and there's experimentation and balancing those. I wonder if you went back to those stories now, if you could actually push to the surface the things that maybe are there to resonate. Like a pimple? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something else. No. <laughs> but, like, you know, the, 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 the unconscious youthful mind might have scattered those seeds but not you know sprouted them <laughs> now we're back to the pimples somehow anyway um yeah so you had to take that subtext but i think um didn't i once say something about one of your short stories along that the line pissed of, me off yeah what was it like that i didn't quite understand it you I, thought I, well no you accused me of a twist ending in a in a, a bad thing in a not in a not no, I, like um, I thought it was cavalier somehow like it was a little yeah. cheap a little cheap yeah. is that right I'm trying to use any of those words to be honest with you I remember reading your youthful short stories you know in our early 20s and I remember feeling like I'm sure that these are like brilliant beyond my <laughs> comprehension I mean I think they had that sense of like there is something going on here and it's open-ended and it's up to the reader but like because you hadn't done that like that last yeah. layer of push you know, I couldn't quite get there, but I definitely was was pretty sure it was it was like as likely to be me as you at, at fault for that, and me as the reader. But now that you've developed your self esteem, now I know it's all your fault. Exactly. That's well, that's just marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, thank you guys. Great um, to chat in front of you. Please feel free to send us questions at questions at storymakershow.com. Check out bookwritingworld.com backslash classes and come join me for some incredible writing uh, of your own. All right. And if you're curious about what we look like, go see our movie page. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be putting up pictures of people, some of whom will be us. Lost in the Middle Movie on Facebook. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great writing week.